Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today I'm talking to my friend Tracy, who invested into Gusto six years ago and has been a huge source of inspiration. Tracy loves math, studied at Oxford, being sponsored by Accenture and worked in consulting, banking, venture capital and started her own company and then invested into 25 other companies. She is super intelligent and data-driven, but I've always admired her people, brand and culture focus the most. In this episode, Tracy will talk about her humble beginnings, what she learned when Fab.com, a multi-billion company that acquired her startup, failed, and how she thinks about personal development, coaching, and resilience. Tracy, thank you so much for taking the time. You're in your third trimester. Um, I hope you know this is okay to do today. It is. I'm so grateful that the baby has decided to stay put so that we can have this conversation <laughs> this morning. You know exactly what it's like in these um, last days of pregnancy at any moment. So um, perhaps our, our listeners might get to be part of the journey with us. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. Tracy, you and I have known each other for a long time, but I love for you to share where you grew up and how growing up was like yes and we, i know we've spoken about this a few times before and i know we we know how formative those early moments can be um, and as parents i guess i try and let go of that as much as possible but my, i was born in northamptonshire and my parents when i was three moved to Wickford, a, a town in Essex, which if you were in Britain in the 80s or 90s, you will remember quite clearly the, the joke book of Tracy from Essex. Mm -hmm. So they, they did me a service, I suppose, of forcing me not to take myself too seriously from quite a young age. I was really lucky that they encouraged me to applied to grammar school and I got into this amazing school which I obviously hated from age 11 and spent a bit of time in that those early years of, of secondary school being just a complete terror um, and I'm sure I'm sure you'll also share your experiences of disagreeing with that conformity at that young age and then this wicked physics teacher pulled me out of myself and showed me that if you thought if you engaged your brain just a little bit that you could do sometimes you could do quite well and sort of flip the switch for me in the second half of my teens well it was um, exactly the same for me by the way I was the biggest liability until I was 15 I failed class because I just didn't go so yeah super painful and then one day it somehow made click and it, and it changed very similar. It's amazing how those like tiny interventions can really change the path that you're on. She very, she she really sweetly said to me, "We've got a test tomorrow. I've got my folder here of the course that materials that you haven't looked at. Um, I only have one copy, but I trust you to take it home. And if you read it and you come back in and you don't do well in a test tomorrow, then I'll never bother you again." She really put her trust in me and it was, yeah, it was game changing. And, and I, I stayed at school and I really enjoyed it actually from, from then on. And I was the only person in my family or my friendship group from outside of school that had stayed at school beyond 16. Mm -hmm. So that was again, sort of my, my second experience of feeling quite different. Um, the first was... Tracy from Essex going to this grammar school and then the, the second the second one was I guess in the completely the opposite direction 
but it gave me some type of bravery, I suppose, mm-hmm. that's, that's sort of stuck around ever since. And were your parents in business or did you have any contact with entrepreneurship back then? I didn't really find out until much later on, but my my dad has had a, a number of entrepreneurial ventures in um, in his career. He inherited a business from his previous father-in-law. He was a programmer in the really early days, and he wow. actually met my mum while she was running a typing pool who were doing punch cards, which, uh, which again, I didn't find out until recent years. Fascinating. But my, my mum's variously had businesses as a dressmaker making jumpers for the local football team clothes for the local families and also in business running offices or credit control or or accounting for small companies and so my I've always um, money used to have a little book when I was tiny where doing chores would uh, mean 10p, 20p, wash the floor, pay piano for 30 minutes. That really um, screwed up my attitude <laughs> to piano. And then later, when I was sort of nine or 10, doing the filing for my mum's company that she ran for my home office. So I guess I've always been exposed to business and, and I've always had a job. My first proper job outside of the home was um, in a hairdresser's when I was 12. I've always, I've always worked um, and actually always really enjoyed it. Sounds amazing. And how, how did you then decide to study math? Oh, because I just love it so much. <laughs> when, when did you start was, loving math? You must have had a great teacher. Or... <laughs> um, I guess initially my dad, my dad also really loves math. When he was a kid, he, he left home. He had his heart broken when he was 17 and he snuck on a boat to Kenya and ended up teaching maths at, at a wow. school, um, at a sort of college um, at entry university level. And he's just always... I guess I've observed that by osmosis. I remember doing my times table with him when I was sort of three or four, um, going to bed at night. And, and I've just always loved puzzles and you know, the art and science that is you know, the beauty that comes in numbers. And I'd actually planned to do engineering and then um, took a look around Oxford and this really great professor who was friends with mine headmistress took me to one side and he was like the only bits of this course that you really like are the maths bits mm. and you don't seem to like structure very much and engineering is you know nine to five every day I think you might like maths more I sort of walked me over to the maths mm-hmm. school and then I, and there I stayed so you went to Oxford how did you find getting into Oxford how was it like compared to where you came from I just never come across people like the people that I met there. I thought it was only me thinking. I'm really glad to hear. <laughs> yeah, it was a real surprise that people of my age could be quite just so different. I'd also I'd taken a gap year, and especially for maths, it's, it's really discouraged, which I then, when I arrived, understood why, because I'd obviously forgotten everything. And most importantly, really forgotten how to think. Um, so that was a bit of a shock to the system. But then you slowly expand. I mean, God, did it expand my horizons. And I really arrived with a massive chip on my shoulder until a friend of mine who was also from Essex, also who'd grown up without any, any privilege, also was, you could have felt like a duck out of water, but had this inner confidence that never never seemed to shake him said to me why have you got like, like we're at Oxford now you're not you're not allowed to have that chip on your shoulder yeah, it, the game's reset uh, get rid of it um, and I'm pleased he said that to me quite early on because it did make the rest of my time there so much more enjoyable and he of course became a bit a significant influencer to me and um, a few years later became my <laughs> husband <laughs> James is a great guy and th- How long did you stay in Oxford for? And like, at what stage did you then decide what would be the next um, or the first job after uni? Well, Accenture had sponsored me through uni, which was, I mean, it's such a fortunate thing to have discovered and such a great program that they run. And Mass Oxford is a four-year course, but by then I'd been living in London every holiday working 
for the tech strategy team at Accenture and really enjoying earning money and the freedom that came from living in a big city. So I, I didn't, I, I only stayed there for three years um, and, I, and I moved to London afterwards. And how did you, I find this really fascinating, how did you feel about studying math? Like, was it 50-50 female men? And how, at Accenture, how did it look there? There were hardly any women studying maths, but I was lucky in my college that it was two-thirds, one-third. So there were 15 of us studying maths in joint schools. So math with physics or maths with philosophy. And a third of us were women. Um, and of my two tutors at college, one was one was a man and one was a woman. So in that little bubble, it was far more even than it was across the rest of the university. And Accenture, most everybody that I worked with was a, was a guy. And you know, with, with that does come a lack of role model. And I remember, uh, I guess our paths started to cross more um, in our, my first job after uni at Rothschild, which is where you also decided to go. Indeed, yeah. And I realized there were very few, there were very few women, very few. And the plus side of that is, of course, people remember you, rightly or wrongly, um, instead of being, you know, that white guy who's sort of six foot tall, um, you know, the girl that um, you know, could have identified you quite easily. So that, that was quite helpful for career progression, working on interesting projects, meeting people. But there didn't really seem to be many role models of just intelligent, nice women within the firm. There were so few of them. It was so difficult to get exposure to them. And I think you left in 2008 and I joined in 2008 and we literally worked in the same team. But I think at some point we month. sat in the same seat, <laughs> the physically yeah, the same be, seat. Yeah, a tiny team. And <laughs> how did you find the culture? What, what kind of did you take away in terms of learning how to treat people, how to think? What was the good stuff? What was the bad stuff? I was fascinated from the moment that I that I met anybody there and how long the brand had endured. Just this incredible badge of trust that had been around for decades, for more than a hundred years. And that like trusted advisor, whether that was to governments or families or companies. And actually the way in which a lot of people seem to conform, you know, the guys um, would all end up wearing the same tie with the same haircut. I remember that. Yeah, it really was very little separation between the people and the company. Tracy, on day one, I was told, Timo, you look like you just came off the boat, which I guess is borderline <laughs> racist. Um, and I looked around and everyone came from Oxford or Cambridge. And, um, you know, I was wearing this like really big shirt with a pocket in it and just didn't look um, at all um, like all the, the very slick other bankers. So I, I understand your point. It's amazing how they, I mean, their, their service is their people and they, they take that incredibly seriously. And there's a lot to be learned around the, the diligence of creating a long lasting brand from what those, from what they created. And people stayed for a really long time and that gave people this sort of feeling that you know, they should invest in relationships. On the other hand, it also gave people the feeling that if you underperformed, you got to stay anyway. And I really enjoy high performance cultures and that there is, a, there is the, the upside of longevity and the downside of people feeling comfortable sometimes. And, you know, you and I just worked our ass off, you know, the number of all-nighters going in on a Thursday, coming home on a Sunday. I suppose it was, it was relatively intense. I always remember the time I spent four days in the office in a row. And on Sunday afternoon, the deal was done. And I, I literally like almost collapsed and my managing director wanted to do a debrief. And so we did a call and he said, okay, um, could you now start, please, um, right away, working on this and this pitch deck for next Friday, but I, I would like to see a first draft tonight at eight. And I was so shocked by the utter lack of empathy. I love the intensity and, you know, the, the focus and the work ethics. <laughs> but this was the moment I realized, wow, like, you know, what is it enough? That makes no sense. Oh, this, this, um, 
I had to go through it and therefore it's a rite of passage and you must. That and the, the amount of time that you have to stay in order to win your next promotion. Those were two things that I was really happy to really happy to leave behind. I remember I'd been in the office, I'd done an all-nighter when I was there the following day and I left at 2 a.m. And I phoned my good friend Rebecca who lived just around the corner from the office. She was just living off Brick Lane and I was like, what are you doing? She's like, it's 2 a.m. I'm asleep. I'm like, well, this is the first time in a long time that I've been able to go out. So get up, get dressed. <laughs> We're going out for the next three hours and love her. She complied and we went dancing for wow. most of the rest of the night. Wow. So last last memory from my side, one of my favorite memories was when I walked into you know, the department's um, office, uh, we received very small bonuses by, I guess, industry standards or history. However, I was like, you know, in my early 20s, I joined when I was 23. And I went in and I said, wow, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for paying me a bonus. This is 2008. You know, there's a recession going on. I'm incredibly thankful. And he looked at me and he, he didn't speak for like 30 seconds. And he said, like, are you shitting me? Like, are you being cynical? And just like, no, no, I'm genuinely thankful. Um, thank you so much. And he just couldn't believe that anyone walked up to him to thank him. And years later, he kept on telling me I was the only person ever thanking him for bonus, which... You know, oh, Timo, you made me feel me. so bad. I've got some reflection to do on this later. I resigned the day after my second bonus. I was sat at my desk at 7 a.m. so scared, so scared to tell the guy that ran our team. And walked in with my letter. And as I opened the door, he, he said, you've got to be shitting me. Put the letter down. <laughs> and he turned around <laughs> and left. <laughs> oh, yeah. And do you feel like you, until today, benefit from the toolbox you've gained being in banking? I love clarity of what high performance is. And I think they were incredibly clear in every project, in every review, at every stage, what good is. And while I think there are lots of ways to compensate people and, and cash is quite a, a crude one, they were also very clear that if you perform well, you'll be stacked ranked and you'll be paid accordingly. And I've really respected the time and effort that they put into that structure and those processes and the clarity that they gave to people. And that's definitely stayed with me. Yeah, it's a great point. And so you decided to leave. Why, why did you decide to leave? I'd, I'd done quite well in my first couple of years in that sort of stack rank. And I thought it's quite a long, long time until you get to really play a different game. I didn't want to stay for that long. And so I started looking around and I met this amazing man called Danny Trull, who I think still now runs the, the fund for the Wellcome Trust. And he was doing really crazy stuff like putting in a bid to buy boots he really expanded my horizon as to what work could be. He's like, come, come work with me, go to Brazil, figure out what the Wellcome Trust should do in Brazil, live there for a couple wow. of like, oh, Is that a job? Can that be real? And it sort of led me into this field of exploration where I discovered venture capital, which I really had no, never heard of before. And I met these guys at MMC Ventures, which is, again, where our paths um, somewhat overlap. And they were five guys, four guys in a muse house in Kensington that had been investing their own money in some of their friends and colleagues. And they just won this 30 million fund, which was going to be game changing for them. And they were hiring. And in 2008, I joined their team. And how was it like? Lots of cerebral, kind individuals working independently. Very little brand. I mean, it was a very different you know, venture. Was not um, as well known or as big as obviously as it is now. It's a great opportunity to really just work autonomously. Day one, here here's an IKEA pack desk. Assemble your own desk. Day two, all of our information is in paper files. Um, have have a look and see what you can figure out. Day three, reach out to any companies you like and see if you find any that you want to promote for investment. It was, it was incredibly freeing, <laughs> incredibly freeing. And I spent three very happy years there. 
Um, and I, the three investments that I worked on all, all exited and returned pretty quickly, all for quite good return. So I also left after that period of time thinking that um, you were somewhat guaranteed to make profitable investments. Um, you know, that would happen in you know, two or three years. It, the rest of my portfolio has turned out to take rather longer. I definitely caught the bug. And what did you learn about spotting good investments? Like what, you know, what separates a winning venture investment from one that kind of does okay or underperforms? It's a really tough one. I don't think anyone has a magic rule. I learned that I was very biased to the characteristics of the individual. I'm just fascinated by people and people with really high potential people that do believe that you can build business in a, in a good way that you can create a micro society of you know, teammates that really love working their customers that really love your product suppliers that love working with you and make money. And I've been ever since then really drawn to people with that quite similar value system and you know, charismatic people that have a real passion for what they do and that's not answering your question at all, um, which is in part you know, the reason why I left MMC, because I thought you know, I really wanted to build my own team and my own business. And later, of course, I went back into venture, but uh, I'm far more fascinated by watching people grow than I am by getting a great cash return on my investment. So you left to start your own business. How was that like? pretty insane me my a friend of mine from uni she'd been in um product roles in gaming companies and digital businesses and so she'd sort of seen what it was to grow a team and grow a product fast so i massively lucked out to work with viv and she and i raised a million quid off of a slide deck and a lot of that actually came from peers of both of ours from our, our last roles. And I remember a couple of weeks in, one of my one of my peers, a guy called Scott, saying, Come on, tell me honestly, is it that much harder than, than being a VC to run your own business? And I was like, You have no idea. <laughs> um, it's really, I mean, it's so hard. You have just thousands of things to do, especially in the early days. To make any progress, it's just a huge amount of work. And that context switching from strategy to execution on you know moment-by-moment -moment basis, it's just, how did you find those early days? Hard, incredibly fun and liberating. I work best uh, in environments of high autonomy, freedom. I take huge ownership and put a lot of burden on me. So I really, really enjoyed it. But it was also hugely challenging not having any resources, not being able to pay salaries, you know, constantly selling the dream, whilst obviously fearing that failure is knocking at the door anytime. So yeah, it was it was a huge uh, emotional roller coaster, greatly enhanced by lack of sleep. And uh, I guess the, the most fun bit are the people, the crazy people you meet along the journey, who really make it enjoyable and fun. And you together focus on problem solving. And uh, it's just hugely fun. And I felt like it's a huge privilege to kind of experience the craziness of starting a company. Oh, isn't it just that? I managed to somehow convince a friend of mine from school to to join our team to leave the research project that she was running at the RCA and come and be part of what it was that we were building and we were like five people in somebody else's basement that they'd given us for free um, right next to the toilet doors that didn't have any proper doors on them so it was an um, interesting soundtrack and smell um, accompanying those those really early days and it was I mean I just felt so alive and I, I loved it and then really until we got to 50 people we just had this incredible bond I, and still now if i see people at um, an ex-colleague's wedding or kids party or similar there's still this sort of feeling of how special those early days were and, and how much people really felt like they were with their people 
by the time we were 50 people, we were 22 nationalities and there were um, architects and illustrators and medics and somebody who had previously been working with um, speech therapy for kids with autism. We were just such a weird group of people that had all come together around this one business. It was, it was such a, you know, you said privilege and that really resonated with me. And then Fab came along. What happened? Oh, and then Fab. Yeah. They, they were the darling of the tech industry at the time. And they were the fastest ever growing econ business at, again at the time. Based in New York, ran by two very big personalities. And they were raising a hundred million and they, they said they were going to put 70 of it into Europe and would we join with them? And we did. So, so the, my business was a sort of seven month, 20 hour day, seven day a week roller coaster love affair that, that ended by um, joining up with Fab. And a week or so after we'd signed the paperwork, they asked me to move to Berlin um, and helped integrate the 50 or so people that they had there with the 50 or so people we had in London. And that I had just the most intense learning experience over the next 18 months, three different countries, three different business models, three different roles. And ultimately the business got to its billion dollar valuation the day that it made 200 people redundant in Europe. Um, And then within a year was no more. It was really a compressed learning experience of what can go wrong. Um, so what startup and what do you think happened because i remember as you said i remember this like crazy success story you know everyone looked at fab they raised so much money multi-billion um, valuation hiring 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 and then it seemed to implode relatively fast so what were kind of the early signs what do you think are the lessons learned i guess the first sign was for me within days of completing was being asked to look after culture in Europe. And I thought, Oh no, if you need one person to look after culture, something has gone wrong. And then realizing that data was really kept in silos, lots of individual projects, thinking about unit economics or path to profitability was more of a sales story than it was about business strategy. So communication, both of information and how people worked collaboratively together was really not good and, and didn't, didn't improve much over the time that I was there. And, and ultimately, the two founders had a very difficult relationship and that really became the, the end of the journey for me. And, and I guess the meta learnings that came away from that were openness of information, getting people solving the right problems, working collaboratively across countries and business units. And they're not nice to have, but you know, critically important. And as you said, you know, it, it did go up and down incredibly quickly. And um, the CEO is an amazing fundraiser, such a great salesperson. I learned a huge amount. And it's way easier to sell a business model that doesn't exist rather than one that you're executing poorly against at the time. You know, since the beginning of Goosey, you have been so focused on doing one thing and doing it excellently. And there's no room to hide there. Either you're progressing um, or you're not. Um, it's not by choice. I'm just less eloquent. <laughs> we both know it's that. It's entirely by choice. It's this perfectionism, this like high standard that you hold yourself and your team hold themselves to. That means that you can continue to be excited by getting the customer proposition even better and the operations even better, the tech even better, the data even better. That's a fun journey to go on. You're right? We were a flash sales business that became an e-com store that became a furniture maker within 18 months. Mm. You know, not only did the team have whiplash, but the customers did too. You've got to pick one thing and stay true to it. Focus is, of course, your friend. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, complexity is the biggest enemy of execution and focus is so crucial. And I think that's been one of my biggest learnings um, of building Gusto for the last eight years. So Fab collapsed. What did you do next? Uh, started having panic attacks. It was really, it was really tough. I'd really committed all of my that my angel investors had become investors in Fab. My team had become option holders in Fab, and and I could see this thing exploding. And I was meant to be moving permanently to New York. My husband was going to figure out how to move over there with me. And on the day that we were looking at apartments, um, I said, "Okay, I've had enough." And he'd been such a cheerleader for so long, uh, but we did. He was like, "Okay." Let's say goodbye to your friends this weekend. Let's go. Wow. And that, that period of time, and, and I really didn't have any language to apply to the panic attacks that I was having. But that's now what I understand to have been the case. It was really hard to let go of that responsibility. It really wasn't mine at that point to hold. So I came back to London. How long did it take to kind of start seeing this almost as a positive episode, you know, rich learnings, incredible experience? How long did that process take you? A long time. Intensely at the beginning and less intensely so over time. But we'd had this really special thing and somehow it had ended in, in that you know, waves of redundancy of people that were working so hard that brought so much passion to work such a waste of money, the amount of money that that business took and then it just burned through. You know, it, it, was, it was really hard to get over a lot of those things. And actually the way, the thing that ended up helping the most was when I moved back to London, I started work, working with a few other founders that really inspired me to try and help them avoid a lot of the obvious mistakes that we just made. And I made a couple of very, very tiny investments, yourself included. And actually just watching those people go through their journey and realizing that that was one chapter of my career, one chapter of my life, intense as it was. And that there, will be, there are others and I was in the next one. That was incredibly healing. And actually just having a lot of fun working with people that I was learning from. Yeah, slowly, slowly. And since then, in how many companies have you roughly invested in? Uh, uh, really not that many for the amount of time that I've been in and around this industry. 25? That's a lot by my count. And a few of them have were through the funds that I've been involved in, but nearly all of them directly. And... I'm friends with all of the founders that, that I've backed. I really do see it as being you know, a privilege to be part of the journey that they're on. And some of them have now built quite big companies. And when I continue to be inspired by the scale and, and potential longevity of what they build, it's a very cool thing to be able to do. 25 investments. What are kind of the lessons learned? Some of those companies have managed to scale what are, I guess, the differences between startup and scale-up? And, you know, why do some companies succeed? What are kind of the differences and attributes you see? I mean, I'd really love to ask you on, around how you've managed the journey from founder to CEO. I guess it's a type of thing that happens slowly over time, but it's really critical to the business being able to become a company that can can really grow to the next level and I think you've done it beautifully and I often hold you up as a, a role model in that transition what do you think are the the key moments that where you really you created a step change where you really knew you were going on that journey from founder to CEO I mean I think you're incredibly kind and the jury is still out I think Ultimately, the challenge for me personally has been to reinvent myself quite a few times. And that requires a very, very high degree of reflection, resilience and commitment to learning and, and development and to never be defensive and, and kind of take criticism in a negative way and instead really commit to growing yourself. And I guess in terms of moments on the Gusto journey, 
I think there was this moment when I literally, you know, had to make a decision. Do I want to have a leadership team or do I want to be the CEO who takes the shots? And I kind of worked through this and there's no right or wrong, but I then like really firmly committed to, to having the best possible leadership team that has psychological safety, trust, diversity, cognitive diversity, where people are truly empowered to make decisions. So we went through lots of exercises of writing down what does Timo decide? What does the team decide? What's the purpose of the team? What are the shared objectives? How do we work on behaviors? You know, we had green and red cards to call out certain behaviors and reinforce positive ones. Lots of offsides, lots of coaching sessions. And I think that like immense commitment to establishing a team was kind of one of the most pivotal moments on the Gusto journey. And then obviously the next challenge was how do you build a team under the management, the leadership team? How do you build high potential programs? How do you build head of uh, teams that scale? Um, so it becomes a lot more about the system design and operating model and organizational design. But I guess that moment was pivotal. Um, so really delegating true decision-making power and creating autonomy so that you can scale and constantly understanding the rate of change. So anticipating, you know, if the company doubles and our team doubles, what is the implication on my role? Which processes scale? Which ones don't? How does the operating model have to change? How does decision-making have to change? How does corporate governance have has to change? So I, I think... You know, I worked with seven coaches on this journey and at some point, I can't even remember who it was, but somebody really pushed me hard. Like you got to every quarter spend a couple of days outside of the office, mapping the rate of change, the impact on your diary, on you, on your level of energy, on what excites you, what doesn't excite you. And then really solving for this in a systematic way, uh, surrounding yourself with, with people who have different strengths and who can handle this stuff. Um, so it's kind of required a lot of meta, um, a lot of me stepping out um, of Timo, the, the CEO and founder and being kind of Timo, the supervisor and giving Timo the CEO feedback and really kind of making adjustments all the way um, along the journey, if that makes, makes sense. Did you see that positive feedback loop from investing time in reflection, taking some of those big systematic decisions or big um, structural decisions, investing time in yourself and the people that you work most closely with. Did you see that positive loop back into the performance of Gusto straight away or, or how much of that was based on faith or role modeling in the early days? So, I mean, it's a delayed feedback loop. Potential really foreshadows performance, future performance. So in my head, I early on established kind of this link between What's the potential of the team? And then this kind of drives performance in the next couple of years, something no financial analyst would kind of ever try to analyze. And if you look at potential, potential obviously is linked to growth mindset, resilience, um, a couple of other things. And the more kind of you understand growth mindset, resilience, and those things that drive potential, which then drives performance, you kind of realize, okay, I really, really systematically have to invest into this to create this virtuous circle. So I very quickly kind of tried to surround myself with incredible advisors. I'm super, super blessed when I look at the team. I learn from everyone on my team every single day. Um, I talk to CEOs of large companies, small companies. So I, I try to create every opportunity for me to learn. And then whenever I you know, learn stuff I find useful, I share it with the team, I encourage them. And I think to really have the culture centered around this, you need psychological safety. And yes, you need high support and high challenge. It's really important to have high performance. And that's really tough to get right as a balance. But the foundation is, is kind of this appetite for learning um, and ferocious self-development, which you know you can offer people, but ultimately it needs to come from intrinsic motivation to some extent. Yeah, surrounding yourself by people that, with people that really love that and then reinforcing reinforcing that every day. I, um, I remember even in the very early days, um, you having signs stuck up about the importance of learning. And then you went really deep into the, the school of Gusto and, and it was you know, advertised everywhere throughout the office. And it was really talking to anybody in the team, one of the first things that they spoke about. Like just having this complete dedication to learning 
we had a pretty um, rough, rough and edgy office um, because we couldn't afford a proper one. But yeah, we had our values all over the place and our learning philosophy and it was great fun. And I felt so, so excited, Tracy, when you invested. I never told you how excited I was. You know, wow, Tracy is incredible and she's backing us. And that's a huge vote of confidence. Somebody must have oversold me before we met, but I do. I love that first <laughs> office. It felt like you were working in a garage. It was just, <laughs> it was wicked. I loved it. Believe it or not, we stayed, you know, we stayed there for six years because we were so afraid of failure and running out of cash. And, you know, I was so burned by the experience of, you know, not being able to pay salaries one time. And we had a deal fall through and we had lots of really, you know, close to death experiences in the early days. Now it's obviously completely changed. The office is super nice. But yeah, it was tough back then. Yeah, the, the office is now super nice. And you still let me come in and ask difficult questions in front of the rest of your investors. It's very kind of you. It's always fun. Always a pleasure. Um, mm -hmm. And you've seen many, many boards. You are the chair of uh, a great company. You've seen other boards through the 25 investments. You've seen boards through MMC. Kind of talk me through some of the lessons learned. What makes a great board? I guess you and I, would, I'm sure, say the same thing. It really is the people um, and the people having an alignment around the mission of the company and really being there because they want the business in its entirety to succeed. And then making sure that there's really great diversity of experiences, ways of thinking and, and problem solving and making decisions, really helping the executive team to broaden their perspective and, and to complement them, to supplement the gaps that they have. So, it, it, I mean, it really all does start with the people. And then, you know, like any good meeting, to get the best out of those people, you know, you've got to have a great agenda, hopefully planned out for some time in advance to let people really think deeply and do some good preparatory work for it. Really good, really good materials, a chair that encourages a great forum for discussion, you know, all those sort of like, you know, hygiene factors that we should have for any meeting between any group of people to get the best out of them while they're in the room, making sure that you're always asking for feedback and using that, that space as an opportunity to get exposure to the rest of the leadership team and for them to get exposure to the board too helping them to create connections outside of the, the roles that they have, helping them to meet their peers so that they can go and do the sort of listening tours that you were mentioning with other CEOs before, helping them to be challenged and, and supported by a broader group of people. And, and I've seen really good ones. And I've seen really bad, really bad ones. The, the one that you mentioned where I'm currently chair, it's, a really well-performing group who've all invested a lot of time getting to know each other um, who all have quite different backgrounds and take the role of challenging and guiding the strategy and plan of the business and take it really seriously and are very engaged with the culture of the business and a good, a good reflection of that. I've been on other boards where people don't read materials, where they're so concerned about their own track record as an investor that every single topic comes back to their single perspective. Boards where they're really focused on the myopic of you haven't executed exactly what the plan said when I invested two years ago, or why is this expense line um, as it is? It was a bit quite humorous boards. I was on a board once with where Kelvin McKenzie, who was at the time the editor of The Sun, was chair. Wow. And during the time that I, I was on that board, uh, another board that he was on, he he um, punched somebody in the face and, and gave him a bloody nose in the middle of a board meeting. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that was he, and he gave the most incredible welcome speech at the beginning of every board meeting. And it was always really good fun, chaotic and more focused on, on him perhaps than it was on the business, but you know, fun nevertheless. And um, you know, why are we doing this? There are far easier ways to earn money than the roles that either of us have had and enjoying it, it is definitely part of the game. And then he took that bit of it very seriously, I suppose. Well, it sounds incredible. Thank you so much for sharing those lessons. And uh, a lot of what you said resonates. I think one of the biggest learnings I had recently on boards is that you invest so much time 
and culture and values at a management level and within the business. And I kind of always surfaced those to the board, but I never onboarded the board properly. And I never said, look, you know, what are the norms? What are the values we as a board want to have? What are the expectations? Let's write them down. And I think it's quite easy to be too casual and to not contract tightly enough with the team. And that's been a big lesson learned. Just on that topic, I know you love coaching. You and I always geek out over coaching. What's your take on mentorship, coaching? You've helped so many people. Well, you said that you've had seven coaches. I've I really them. needed them. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't we all? Most people uh, only need one. <laughs> uh, but I think mentors and coaches are quite similar. They're that you know, the right ones come into your life at the right time and you really contribute to each other's lives and, and then that time passes and the next person or people will arrive. And I've, I've had three coaches and I'm pretty set with the one that I have right now, but you know, she's supplemented with lots of other mentors. You know, I, I always get this weird picture in my head with the word mentor of somebody that's far older. And when I was at MMC, Bruce, the managing partner at the time said to me, you don't have to be gray to be wise. And I have to constantly remind myself and sort of remove that image of what a mentor looks like. And, and, and over the years, I've had mentors that have been 10 years 12 years now, you know, somebody who's, yeah, 15 years younger than me, then just wise beyond belief than I, that I do go to when I'm faced with a significant decision or have something meaty to ponder over. And I suppose the benefit of having met quite a few people is that those mentors all look quite different to each other. Um, while the mentors and the coaching relationships that I've had that have been successful have actually, the, the people at their core have been very similar, very, very similar in value set, but quite different uh, in behavior, I suppose. So variety, variety has been my big learning with those two groups of people. And it does take me a long time to build up trust. So those people do, do tend to stick around for some time but once once they're in they're in they're sort of part of the the family yeah really powerful point yeah this whole trust element is just the absolute foundation for any mentorship and coaching i think and building trust takes time um it's like a muscle you have to build and i think you and i have seen you know tough situations and I think we both over time have appreciated the importance of resilience and bouncing back and, you know, learning how to energize yourself and dealing with the demons. What do you do, you know, to handle all the mindfuck, all the challenges in your head? Um, you talked about the psychological stress, the fab failure kind of caused until you picked up the learnings. How would you describe, you know, your rituals or what do you do to cope with all the pressure and stress? I use the word rituals and I think that's really been core to the way, in the, my, to my approach, actually just building those habits. If you leave it till the moments of high stress, you don't have that muscle. And you know, if you're underslept, badly fed, in poor physical shape, it's really difficult to pull yourself out of those really difficult, you know, high mental loads. And my, my general daily way of thinking about, about my happiness or my resilience level, that reserve that I have, is if I'm well-rested, well-stretched and, and well-fed, then, then I'll be at my peak. And actually, it's really hard <laughs> to maintain those three things when you're in your third trimester, um, or, or first and second, for that matter, of pregnancy. These habits, I suppose, have to evolve over time and um, move with the flow of what's going on in your life. But you know, generally, as a rule, that's been really important to me. And when I've let any of those things come out of my priority list, fall off of my daily ritual I really you know, I have felt resilience drop so that's been really important you know training is training has always been a key a key part of my life a way to get out of my mind 
to get into my body. You're strong. I do firmly believe that if you're strong in the body, then you're strong in the mind. And fortunately for me, a lot of my friends feel quite similarly. So um, you and I can have a really in-depth discussion about a challenge that one of us is having while challenging each other to your burpees and squat jumps at the same time. Um, Last time we did that, oh, Tracy, (laughs) you killed me. It was painful. (laughs) And I've just, I'm never including burpees in a workout that we do together ever again. And I have to blame Joe Wicks entirely for that. Um, You do (laughs) seem to have a superpower when it comes to a burpee. Um, But yeah, those those would have been the three tenants and journaling, uh, really clear, regular structure for annual, quarterly, and then, and then weekly uh, reflection has been. How long have you done it for? In the format that I'm doing now for three years. Yeah, I've, I've done journaling for probably 10 years now in like different formats, but I really, really love it. It's so powerful. It feels like you're offloading you're kind of, you're getting closure, you're reflecting, just love it, it's super powerful. I agree, I mean, it's such a simple tool um, that can have such huge effects. And, I, and, and I've sort of dipped in and out of it over the last decade, and I wish, like you, I'd been more consistent from the start. But having that, forcing yourself on a weekly basis to think, you know, what were I grateful for, for over the past week? Really, and I find the more specific, the better. Really gets me into this like open, positive abundance attitude, and it allows me to then say, when did I not show up last week, or, or when did I show up really badly, and be really, really brutally honest with myself. It gives, sort of, sets me up to be you know, safe, to be as honest as is possible, and then That's it helps powerful. to focus for the next week because some of those focuses are um, less output orientated and more about onboarding some of the learnings from the the previous week or the previous quarter so i love that um that's really powerful i'll i'll try that so i'm doing daily gratitude so i like every day start my day by writing down you know four to ten small things that really make me grateful and i love this whole appreciation focus um because obviously the job is all about expectation not appreciation uh it always everything always needs to be better um Mm. but i love the point about giving yourself permission to be brutally honest with yourself when did i not show up that's powerful i'll try that thank you okay i give it a go and let me know how it goes i i do um even now i have a short yoga practice every morning and that's my opportunity to have my 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 list of two or three, maybe in my list, maybe I should expand it, give myself more time of things that I'm really grateful for. It's a really calming way to set the day off before all of those expectations start piling in throughout the course of the rest of the day. Tracy, I want to thank you. I kept you for such a long time You're in your third trimester. I'm massively, massively thankful for the session. It's been amazing. I learned a ton. So thank you very much. Always my pleasure to have a conversation with you. 